6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Dr. Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Dr. Missler completes his teaching on the book of 1 Kings, chapters 5 through 8. The Kathiv, the way it's spelled, is a cup of Av and a He in that passage. The Kiri, the correct way, is a cup and a Vav. Well, the, the cup is a hundred, the vav is a six, and the he is a five. So the way it should be spelled should add up to 106. But the way it was spelled in that passage with the extra he, it adds up to 111. Well, what do you do with that? Well, when you apply that correction, 10 times 3 times 111th, 106th, you get to 31.415094339629 cubits, which means in a distance of about 46 feet, there's an error of less than 15 thousandths of an inch because of the spelling. On this I rest my case. Yes, the Bible's inerrant in the original. If we have problems, it's in, it's in our in inferences or it's in our uh, uh, translations. So I think that's kind of fun. Anyway, First Kings 7.24, And under the brim of it roundabout there were knops, knops compassing it. That's like a gourd, if you will. Ten in a cubit. Compassing a sea roundabout, the canops were ca- uh, cast in two rows where, when it was cast. It stood upon twelve oxen, three look, obviously, mo- this is just sculptured, uh, on twelve oxen, three looking toward the north, three to- looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east, three, and the, and, and the sea was set up above upon them and all their hinder parts were inward. That's a, r- this is again an artist sketch that, uh, my wife had commissioned for her book on, on private worship. I've, I've, uh, Borrowed it with her permission, just to give you a feeling for the thing. It was at a hand breadth thick, and the brim thereof was wrought like the brim of a cup, with flowers of lilies. It contained two thousand baths, and he made ten. Let's see if I I should have that translated for you here. Uh, that would be about uh, C contained two thousand baths. That's about eleven thousand five hundred gallons of, of water. Now the labor held three thousand baths, but they contained two thousand baths. One's a capacity; it wasn't filled all the way up. That's People make a big thing. The Chronicle says 3,000. This says 2,000. This says what was in it. The other one tells what it could hold. There's no difference. It just didn't fill it full. Anybody's tried to fill a propane tank knows what I'm talking about. Okay. They made ten bases of brass. Four cubits was the length of one base. Four cubits, the breadth thereof. Three cubits, the height of it. The work of brass uh, bases was on this manner. They had uh, borders, and borders were between the ledges. And the borders that were between the ledges were lions, oxen, and cherubim. And uh, upon the ledges there was a base above, and beneath the lions and oxen were a certain additions made of thin work, and every base had four brazen wheels, plates of brass, and four corners thereof had undersetters, and the labor were undersetters molten, that means you know, made of bronze, and this, at the side of every addition. And the mouth of it within the chapter and above was a cubit, but the mouth thereof was round after the work of the base, a cubit and a half, and also upon the mouth of it were gravings, upon their borders four square, not round, and under the borders were four wheels, and the axle trees of the wheels were joined to the base, and the way, the, the height of a wheel was a cubit and a half. The work of the wheels was like the work of a chariot wheel. 
Their axle trees and their naves and their fellows and their spokes were all molten. Everything inside the temple proper was gold. Everything outside, including the pillars outside, is bronze. Bronze was the material that could handle heat. It speaks of sin or the judgment of sin. The gold speaks of deity, and so there's a very key demarcation in terms of what's inside and what's outside. The bridge between the two is the porch. There were four undersetters to the four corners of one base, and the undersetters thereof were the very base itself. And on the top of the base, there was a round compass half a cubit high, and on the top of the base, there were ledges thereof, and the borders thereof were the same. And on the plates of the ledges thereof and on the borders thereof, he graved cherubim, lions, and palm trees according to the proportion of every one and the additions round about. And after this manner, he made ten bases. All of them had one casting, one measure, and one size. So these are the lavers and so forth. And then they made ten lavers of brass. One laver contained forty baths, and every laver was four cubits, and every one of the ten bases one laver. And he put five bases on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house, and he set the sea on the right side of the house eastward, over and against the south. And Hiram made the labors and the shovels and the basins, so Hiram made an end of doing all the work that he made King Solomon for the house of the Lord. And the two pillars, the two bowls of the chapters that were on top of the two pillars, and the two networks to cover the two bowls of the chapters, which were upon the top of the pillars, and 400 pomegranates for the two networks, even two rows of pomegranates for one network to cover the two bowls of the chapters that were upon the pillars and the ten bases and the ten labors on the bases, and one sea, and twelve oxen on the sea, and the pots, and the shovels, and the basins, and all the vessels which Hiram made to King Solomon for the house of the Lord were of bright brass. And in the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zarthon. And Solomon left all the vessels unweighed, because they were exceeding many, neither was the weight of brass found out. So, so much brass, they didn't bother to weigh it. And Solomon made all the vessels that pertained unto the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, whereupon the showbread was, the candlestick exorcists, the lampstands of gold, five on the right side, five on the left, before the oracle or the holy voice, and the flowers and the lamps and the tongues of gold, and the bowls and the snuffers and the basins and the spoons and the censers of pure gold, the hinges of gold, both for the doors of the inner house, the most holy place, and the doors of the house, to wit, the temple. So ended all the work that King Solomon made for the house of the Lord. And Solomon brought in the things which David his father had dedicated, even the silver and the gold and the vessels did he put among the treasures of the house of the Lord. Whew. Okay? You all have a clear sketch of that? You can just draw it on a scratch pad? Okay, now we're going to dedicate the temple. So Solomon assembled the elders of Israel, all the heads of the tribes, the chief of the fathers of the children of Israel, unto the king Solomon in, in Jerusalem, that they might bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of the city of David, which is in Zion. And all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king Solomon at the feast in the month of Ethanim, which is the seventh month. Okay, Ethanim is an earlier name for what we call today Tishri, okay? The Feast of Tabernacles we're dealing with here, actually. So all the elders of Israel came and the priests took up the ark. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and the tabernacle congregation, all the holy vessels that were in the tabernacle, even those that did the priests and the Levites bring up. Notice they're doing it right. Solomon learned his lesson, or I should say he learned the lesson that David, the, the, the tragedy that occurred when David did it improperly. He's doing it right. David's bitter experience provided a lesson here. And King Solomon and all the congregation of Israel were assembled unto him, were with him before the ark, sacrificing sheep and oxen that could not be told nor numbered for multitude. And the priests brought in the ark of the covenant of the Lord unto his place, unto the oracle of the house of the Lord, unto the most holy place, even under the wings of the cherubim. 
And for the cherubim spread forth, these big wooden ones up there. And the cherubim spread forth their two wings over the place of the ark, and the cherubim covered the ark and the staves thereof above. And they drew out the staves that the ends of the staves were seen out in the holy place before the oracle, and they were not seen without, And for they are there unto this day, which tells you this was written before the vision of the kingdom, or Babylonian captivity. Strange thing, you always see the Ark of the Covenant as if the poles that are supporting it go longitudinally long. If this is the Ark from left to right here, the poles would be parallel to the long sides. No, they went the other way. They went across the short ends, which actually makes it more stable to carry, by the way. But the other thing is, while it's sitting there behind the veil, the poles would push the curtain so you could tell outside it was there. Follow me? That's what they're trying to say here. And that's commonly misunderstood. You often see almost all the artists that render the Ark of the Covenant render it instinctively would say it, it, it runs longitudinally. No, it actually runs across the short end, the, the poles. And uh, that's what the rabbis have maintained. That's what the scripture also supports. There was nothing in the Ark save the two tables of stone, which Moses put there at Oreb when the Lord made a covenant with the children of Israel when they came out of the land of Egypt. Now this bears out... There's a problem here because in the New Testament, Hebrews 9, 6, it tells us that there was a, the a pot of manna and the Aaron's rod that budded. And that apparently was there in the days of Moses, but along by the time you get to Solomon, they, they seem to have disappeared. They were lost somehow through the, uh, the time. The table of stone are in the, there to remind Israel that the nation was still under the blessings and responsibilities of the Mosaic Covenant. But the pot of manna and the air seems to have mysteriously disappeared. Now it came to pass, when the priests come out of the holy place, that the cloud, not a cloud, the cloud, filled the house of the Lord. So the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. What did we call this cloud? Anyone know? Shekinah. Okay, you bet. I encourage you, take your Bible and study clouds in this sense throughout the Scripture. The cloud, not always, but more often than not, is a a symbol of the presence of God. In Exodus, Numbers, Job, Psalms, and on, lots of places. It was the cloud that led them in the wilderness. And we find that mentioned all through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. It was a pillar uh, of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Pillar by day is mentioned in Exodus 13 and Exodus 40. And uh, the fire by night mentioned in Numbers 9, among other places. But also the Shekinah is at Sinai with the giving of the Ten Commandments. It's in the tabernacle. In fact, in the tabernacle, it was so thick that Moses couldn't enter it. In Exodus 40, we find that. And of course, we see it here at Solomon's dedication. It's mentioned here in 1 Kings 8, but also mentioned in 2 Chronicles 5 and also 2 Chronicles 14. It's interesting that later on, just before the captivity, Ezekiel watches it leave. It came here at Solomon's dedication. But Ezekiel, it's in a vision, so it may have just been symbolic or it may have been literal. That's a, you can wrestle that one, but in, in Ezekiel 10 and Ezekiel 11, he sees the Shekinah, this cloud, leave the temple, Solomon's temple, hover reluctantly, and then go on. 
It's destined to return, Ezekiel emphasizes in Ezekiel 43, and also Isaiah chapter 4 deals with its destined to return in the millennium. Paul alludes to the Shekinah as Israel's peculiar privilege to have beheld it in Romans 9 and 4. And of course, we see it also at Christ's second coming in Matthew 17 and 24, and also in Acts 1, it, it alludes to. The Shekinah, it's an interesting study. I just, those are just some highlights. You can, you can track it through the scriptures. Very interesting. Let's make solemn. The Lord said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I have surely built thee a house to dwell in and a settled place for thee to abide in forever. And the king turned his face about and blessed all the congregation of Israel. And all the congregation of Israel stood and said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, which spake with his mouth unto David my father, and hath with his hand fulfilled it saying, Since the day that I brought forth my people Israel out of Egypt, I chose no city out of all the tribes of Israel to build a house, that my name might be therein. But I chose David to be over my people Israel. And it was in the heart of David my father to build a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And the Lord said unto David my father, Whereas it was in thine heart to build a house unto my name, thou didst well that it was in thine heart. Nevertheless, thou shalt not build a house, but my thy son shall come forth out of thy loins, and he shall build the house unto my name. And the Lord hath performed his word that he spake, that, and I am risen up out, <coughs> up in the room of David my father to sit on the throne of Israel, as the Lord hath promised, and have built a house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. And I have set there a place for the ark, where it is the covenant of the Lord which he made with our fathers when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or in earth beneath, who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart, who has kept with thy servant David, my father, that thou hast promised him. Thou spakest also with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David, my father, that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel. So thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which thou spakest unto thy servant David my father. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded. Yet, have thou respect unto the prayer of thy servant and to his supplication, O Lord my God, and hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place which thou hast said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken unto the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place when thou hearest forgive. If any man trespass against his neighbor and, and an oath be laid upon him to cause him to swear, the oath come before thine altar in this house. Then hear thou in heaven and do and judge thy servants, condemning the wicked to bring his way upon his head and justifying the righteous to give him according to his righteousness. When thy people Israel be smitten down before the enemy because they have sinned against thee, and shall turn again to thee, and confess thy name, and pray, and make supplication unto thee in this house. Then hear thou in heaven, and forgive the sin of thy people Israel, and bring them again unto the land which thou gavest unto their fathers. And when heaven is shut up, that there is no rain, because they have sinned against thee, if they pray toward this place, and confess thy name, and turn from their sin, when thou afflictest them, 
Then hear thou in heaven and forgive the sin of thy servants and of thy people Israel, that they teach them the good way wherein they should walk, give rain upon thy land, which thou hast given to thy people for an inheritance. And if there be in the land famine, if there be pestilence, blasting, mildew, locust, or if there be caterpillar, if their enemy besiege them in the land of their cities, whatsoever plague, whatsoever sickness there be, what prayer and supplication soever be made by any man or by all thy people Israel, which shall know every man the plague of his own heart and spread forth his hands toward his, this house, then hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and forgive and do and give to every man according to his ways, whose heart thou knowest. For thou, even thou only, knowest the hearts of all the children of men, that they may fear thee all the days that they live in the land which thou givest unto our fathers. Moreover, concerning a stranger that is not of thy people Israel, but cometh out of a far country for thy name's sake, for they shall hear of thy great name and of thy strong hand and of thy stretched out arm. When he shall come and pray toward this house, hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place and do according to all that the stranger calleth thee to thee for that all the people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee, as do thy people Israel, that they may know that this house which I builded is called by thy name. If thy people go out to battle against their enemy, whatsoever, whithersoever thou shalt send them, and shall pray unto the Lord toward the city which thou hast chosen and toward the house that I have built for thy name, then hear thou in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. If they sin against thee, for there is no man that sinneth not, and thou be angry with them, and deliver them to the enemy, so that they carry them away captives unto the land of the enemy, far or near. Yet if they shall bethink themselves in the land whither they be carried captives, and repent, and make supplication unto thee in the land of them that carried them captives, saying, We have sinned, we have done perversely, we have committed wickedness, and so return unto thee with all their heart and with all their soul in the land of their enemies, which led them away captive, and pray unto thee toward their land, which thou gavest unto their fathers, the city which thou hast chosen, and the house which I have built for thy name. Then hear thou their prayer and their supplication in heaven and dwelling place, and maintain their cause. Do you hear the prophecy in this? He's a, this is an anticipation of what's coming. And forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee, and give them compassion before them who have carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. For they be thy people and thy inheritance, which thou hast brought us forth out of Egypt from the midst of the furnace of iron. That thine eyes may be open unto the supplication of thy servant and unto the supplication of thy people Israel to hearken unto them all, in all that they call for unto thee. For thou didst separate them from among all the people of the earth to be thine inheritance as thou spakest by the hand of the Moses thy servant when thou broughtest our fathers out of Egypt, O Lord God. And so it was so when Psalm made an end of praying. So uh, just to, uh, in the interest of time, I didn't try to annotate the uh, that, but you'll discover if you study it carefully that uh, there are about seven specific groups of petitions. About verse 23 was God's presence and protection and, and so forth. And the word there, the word hesed is used, which is the word translated mercy, but it's really it's covenantal love is, is the concept behind it. Uh, then about verse 31, the forgiveness of trespasses in general. And about verse 33, the forgiveness of sins causing defeats of enemies was mentioned there. And verse 35 starts, the forgiveness of sins that brought on calamity. And the calamities there are, are, are very, you know, are all of them. There are all kinds of blights and so forth, afflictions. And then uh, the fifth one, fifth petition, verse 41 on, was uh, mercy for God-fearing foreigners. Foreigners, but that are God-fearing. Have mercy on them. And the sixth petition was victory in battle in verse 44 and 45, and then restoration after captivity 
starting about verse 46. So it's a, it, it, there is structure to it. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting exercise to outline it yourself, uh, how you may want to deal with that. So, Okay, and it was so that when Saul made an end of praying all this prayer and supplication of the Lord, he rose from before the altar of the Lord from kneeling on his knees with his hands spread up to heaven, and he stood and blessed all the congregation of Israel with a loud voice saying, Blessed be the Lord that hath given rest unto his people Israel according to all that he hath promised. There hath not failed one word of his, all, all his good promise, which he promised by the hand of Moses' his servant. The Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. Let him not leave us nor forsake us, that he may incline our hearts unto him and to walk in all his ways to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded our fathers. And let these my words, wherewith I have made supplication before the Lord, be nigh unto the Lord our God day and night, that he maintain the cause of his servant and the cause of his people Israel at all times, as the matter shall require." that all the people of the earth may know that the Lord is God and that there is none else. Let your heart therefore be perfect with the Lord our God to walk in his statutes and keep his commandments as at this day. And the king with all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. And Solomon offered a sacrifice of peace offerings, which he offered unto the Lord, two and twenty thousand oxen, can you imagine? And a hundred and twenty thousand sheep. So the king and all the children of Israel dedicated the house of the Lord. The same day to the king hollow, the middle of the court, which was before the house of the Lord, for there he offered burnt offerings and meat offerings, the fat of the peace offerings, because the brazen altar that was before the Lord was too little to receive the burnt offerings and the meat offerings and the fat of the peace offerings. Now, at that time Solomon held a feast, and all Israel with him, the great congregation, from entering in of Hamath unto the river of Egypt before the Lord our God, even seven days and seven, seven days and seven days, even fourteen days. And on the eighth day he sent the people away, and they blessed the king, and they went into the, unto their tents joyful and glad of heart for all the goodness that the Lord hath done for David, his servant, and Israel's people. And so ends our session. But there's a couple of comments I'd like to make. One of the discoveries, I'm indebted to my wife for first highlighting, is that the architecture of the temple may be far more profound than most people realize. Seven times in the New Testament, it says you are the temple of God. And one of the things that's very difficult to ascertain is our software architecture. You can, you can study hardware architecture by physically studying it. But how do you, how do you determine the architecture of the software inside? And, uh, you only do that by knowing the designer. And, uh, we see there's a number of aspects to you and I that are really software terms. We speak of heart, soul, spirit, and mind. What do we mean by those things? You and I tend to think mind refers to brain, but that's not true. It's much broader than that. What's the difference between heart, soul, and spirit? We're supposed to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. Those are four, those are different things. What, what do we really mean by that? Well, my wife made an exhaustive study in both Old and New Testament, the usage of those terms in the original, and came to some very, very interesting discoveries. We've looked at the temple, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place, the porch, the inner court, outer court. The outer court, our, our, our outer court is our body. That's our connection with the tangible world. Our soul seems to, in many respects, correspond to the inner court. Our heart, the holy place, and our spirit, the holy of holies. Once you begin to understand that discrimination, all kinds of passages start to become a lot clearer, especially when it comes to our personal walk. There's a very, very controversial aspect. Uh, Oh, and also, by the way, before I get to that, the bridge between our, our, our inner being and our outer being is the porch. That's the seat of the volition, your choice. 
You know, why is it that we as Christians have the Holy Spirit in us, but you sure can't tell? You see, because we don't choose to follow the leading of the Spirit necessarily. We throttle it at that porch. Part of what God wants to do is let His Spirit flow out through our bodies. And, we, and to understand what can interfere with that is, is the key to the Christian walk. But another aspect here, that's these wooden chambers. That's where the priests kept their personal things. That's where they hid their private idols. And that's one of the things, that's what we do too. That's where we tuck away those things that we shouldn't, rather than take them to the cross. So in any case, uh, uh, there's a tremendous amount of study behind this. I summarize it briefly in a little briefing back called The Architecture of Man. But the real study for this, if you're interested in this, is uh, actually a trilogy of books. It's introduced in The Way of Agape. My name's on the book, but it's primarily my wife's work. And then amplified in practical terms in Be Transformed. This insight that these seven elements here... Uh, are, are that seven times the New Testament, you are the temple of God. You won't understand yourself unless you really understand the temple and how it applies to your walk. And with that, let's close with a word of prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for David, and we thank you that you've chosen to exalt him. We thank you, Father, for the lessons in your word. We pray, Father, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would draw us ever more deeply into the hidden meanings behind each of these things. But above all these things, Father, that we each might grow in grace and the knowledge of you, that we each might be more responsive servants and more fruitful stewards. And, Father, we also humble ourselves as we realize what a wonderful beginning Solomon had, the wisdom and the peace and the prosperity that you rewarded him with, and yet, Father, how he stumbled. Oh, Father, we would ask you through your Holy Spirit to help us finish well. Help us, Father, to keep our hearts focused on you as we just commit ourselves without any reservation into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Dr. Chuck Nussler, teaching through the book of 1 Kings. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.